Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you, Father, that you have more for us than we've imagined available. Father, thank you that you are a good dad, that you love and enjoy your children. Father, thank you that you have called and chosen us and drawn us to you, that we might know you and abide in you and walk in your ways. Father, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and renew our minds that we might know how near we can live to you and all that's available with you. We love you, God. Amen. I want to talk this morning about uh, one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture. And it's a, it's a picture that's found in a book that most of us have probably never read. If we have read it, we've probably not picked it as the first one to go back to and do a Bible study on. And uh, it's the book of Zechariah. It's in the Old Testament, second to last book. Short, sweet. And there's some really interesting, amazing imagery that's found in the book of Zechariah that applies to us today in dealing with what I think is one of the greatest hindrances for us to live near to God continually, constantly. And it's accusation. I want to talk today about coping with accusation. And I want to look at how accusation affects the life of the Christian and causes us to live contentedly with less than what God intends for us to have. So when we look at Zechariah, and we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're just going to look at five verses, verses 1 through 5. In this short series of verses, we find an answer to a question that has long been posed in my own mind, and I've had it posed to be by many others over the last number of years. How do I know when I'm being convicted and when I'm being accused or condemned? How can I tell the difference between when I'm being accused and when I'm being convicted? And how should I respond to each? I can't tell the difference between when God's convicting me of something that I need to be forgiven of and when Satan is accusing me of something that I've done. What do I do for each? How do I respond in each? These are great questions to ask since accusation and conviction are both things that we will deal with for our entire lives. Surely one of the most difficult things to deal with in life is accusation. Accusation, I believe, is one of the great tools of Satan to keep you from God and from accomplishing all you were intended to accomplish in God. But before we look at how accusation comes against us, I want to examine just briefly what it does. 
the effect that accusation has. At its core, in a single word, accusation separates. The, the effect of accusation is to separate. It separates us from God. It, it produces feelings in us that we ought not to be in the presence of God. It paralyzes us. It causes us to believe that we're disqualified from accomplishing anything for God and excludes us from his presence. It paralyzes us. Accusation is intended to convince us that God wants nothing to do with us because of what we've done. At the core, accusation is intended to separate you from God because of what you have done or what you have not done. That's what accusation is. I think for most of us, this is a constant in our lives. Accusation is something that we have come to understand as normal. And yet, we probably don't recognize it for what it is. We probably think this is just a normal course of things, or just, this is just the reality of things. But we hear in our minds, and when we relate to others, thoughts, sounds, words of accusation that tell us, you're not wanted, you have no right to be in the presence of God, you're no good, look at you, you're a wreck. Why would he ever want anything to do with you? You could never do anything for God, you're not one of those type of people. Kurt prayed about the different types of people we have in our midst, well yeah, they could do great things for God, but I couldn't. You don't know my history. And we think those are normal thoughts. We think those are the regular way that we consider ourselves, and maybe even we call it humility. Well, those guys, they're called to do great things. They're called to walk with nearness to God. But I've been a part of a few too many things. I've caused a little bit too much pain. My heart has been a little too wounded and I could never get that close to God. You don't know me like I know me. And we call it humility and we allow it to separate ourselves from God and from the nearness that he intends for us. Accusation comes in many forms. One of the foremost is memories of past sins committed. How many of us are never reminded of a sin that we committed in the past and we never feel shame for those things? Anybody? That's accusation. How do I know that's accusation? Because our sin was removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And the scripture says, I remember your sin no more. If he doesn't remember it, how could he remind you of it? So, remembrance of past sin that's been repented of, being reminded of this and feeling shame or guilt because of it, is accusation. And it separates you from God. Current failures and struggles, the things that I'm mucking my way through right now, and we go, I should be beyond this. I'm a leader. I shouldn't struggle with this. 
This is something that immature Christians struggle with. I should be beyond this. And it separates me from God. Our perceptions of parents or superiors can produce feelings of disappointment as though we've somehow let them down and they're disappointed with us. It doesn't even need to be true, guys. But we're so good at perceiving things in an accusatory manner because Satan is so willing to help us in that regard. And we look around at people with whom we interact and we receive accusation and rejection as though it's reality and it's not. Satan, the great accuser of the brethren, what a source of accusation is he? How do I even respond to his accusations? You know, if I'm convicted, right? If I know that I'm being convicted, I know that I can come to God. And when I come to God, he's going to forgive me, right? That's why I want to try to figure out, is this conviction or is this accusation? Because I know if God's convicting me, he's a good father and he wants to forgive me. And so when conviction comes, I can come into the presence of God and say, God, I did this, you're right, forgive me. And he's like, amen, buddy, I love you, boom, out the door and you're good. When accusation comes, how do I even respond? How do I respond to these feelings of unworthiness? How do I respond when old memories come up of things that have long since been forgiven and forgotten. How do I even respond? Early on in my Christian life, I became aware that it was my responsibility to fight accusation. This was my battle. It was my battle when accusation came to combat it. I'd rebuke the devil Flee from me, you vile thing. Cast him into the pit of hell. All the amazing things where I'm fighting away, defending myself from his accusation. My fight. But really, do we really need others to accuse us? Do we even need Satan to accuse us when we do such a marvelous job of accusing us ourselves? Our own minds are probably the most frequently to blame for the accusations we feel. Discouragement, foremost for many of us. I'm not where I should be. Spiritually, I just know I'm not where I should be. I know I should be doing this. I know I should be in my Bible every day and I'm just not there. I should be praying more. I got to get up in the morning, but five o'clock, holy cow, it's dark. I'm not where I should be. Physically, good Lord. (laughs) Shouldn't have had that third double cheeseburger. I'm not where I should be. Accuse ourselves. Emotionally, I'm sure not the friend I should be. Sure not the dad I should be. Definitely not the husband I should be. I don't even want to talk about that. Separated, separated, separated from God. What about this one? Oh my goodness. I'm turning 30 this year. Turning 35 this year. 
I'm turning 50 this year. Definitely not where I should be in life. I know God meant for me to be way down here, and he's got to be so disappointed. Do we really need friends, parents, even Satan to accuse us when we're so good at it ourselves? There is a war waging in our thoughts, and it's the war between the mind that's set on the flesh and the renewed mind. There is a war that's happening in our thoughts. And it's here, in this war, that's happening in our minds, where we most need the revelation found in Zechariah 3. If you have a Bible, open it up. If it's not open already, just leave it closed, because we're going to skip around anyway. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. First, let's, let's just stop for a quick second. I know we just got some momentum going, but we're going to stop for a second. Who's Joshua? Who's Joshua, the high priest? It's not the guy from the book of Joshua, right? We know that, yeah? Okay, so who is Joshua? He's just some guy. He's just some high priest. Joshua's actually the high priest in the time of the book of Ezra. He is one of the first to return to Jerusalem from Babylon in 538 B.C. He's the high priest that's referred to by Haggai, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And he is the predecessor of Ezra, who was the spiritual leader of God's people and the high priest during the reconstruction of the temple. Joshua was not a rookie. This guy had a calling from God. Think about this for a second. Joshua was tasked with being the spiritual leader of the people during the time where the reconstruction of the temple was taking place. And we go, okay, they're building a building. But in the earth, what's happening is the very manifest presence of God is about to have a dwelling place again with men. This is so much bigger than building a church. God has committed to dwell tangibly in the temple. And Joshua is tasked with leading the people and acting as high priest while this temple is being constructed. Can you imagine the discouragement that they would have had to cope with while trying to bring the manifest presence of God into a dwelling place in the earth? Do we think that the devil would have been silent in just watching this happen? Oh, cool. God is going to come back to the earth. I'll just hang it over here and wait till it's done. Do you remember the disruptions that happened in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra? Haggai talks about it. It was horrific, and here's Joshua, and it's your job, pal, to make sure that my people are led, spiritually nurtured, and heading in the right direction. They're encouraged throughout this process. That's a call. Enormity. We should be aware that when we're laboring with God, we will become very acquainted with the accusations of the enemy. 
So let's go back into Zechariah 3 here. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's standing before the Lord and Satan is at his right hand to accuse him. Guys, when we're laboring with God, this is a position you will become very acquainted with. Because you have your own thoughts and you have an accuser who takes great delight in separating you from God by telling you all kinds of reasons that you have no reason to be near God or working for God. This is a position in which we must become very acquainted. And it's okay to be acquainted with this position. Because the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? I told you earlier that I'd always known that waging war against the devil's accusation was my responsibility, it was my fight. I would rebuke the devil, flee from me, go back to where you belong. I bind your lies, silence in the name of the Lord. Whoops. Because that accusation produced separation that was never needed. In fact, I consumed great amounts of time arguing with the devil just outside of the presence of the Lord, and he was still accomplishing exactly what he set out to do by separating me from my God. I think there are two elements to overcoming accusation. Number one, primarily, when we're under accusation, we must force ourselves to run into the presence of God. Accusation is intended to keep you from God because of what you've done. The response that overcomes is to run into God's presence because of what he has done. Accusation puts the focus on your effort and your accomplishment or lack thereof. The overcoming response turns the focus back into, I get to be with God because of what he's done. My nearness to God has nothing to do with me in the least. My nearness to God is entirely because of what he's done. And if I will respond and walk toward him, I can be near him always. This is amazing because particularly when we get spirit-filled and we become charismatic and we find out that healing and casting out demons is now a part of our normal life responsibilities, we think it's our job to do all the fighting against the devil when he accuses us. But the scripture shows that when we come near to God, he will actually fight on our behalf. When we come near to God in the midst of accusation and we say, God, I'm going to come to you even though I don't feel like I deserve to, even though I feel like 
I'm a failure. I have no reason to be near you. And he rebukes the devil. This one's mine. This one is mine. The second key to overcoming accusation after we've accomplished the first and we've thrown ourselves near him, number two, believe what he says. He will declare his word about us. And the way we fight the battle of the mind is to believe him. Guys, I have seen this so many times where someone, they finally push themselves into the presence of God when they're under accusation. They're feeling the weight of their sin Satan is screaming at them for all the things that they've done wrong and all the things they don't deserve, and they finally press themselves into the presence of God, and he speaks to them, and he says, you are my beloved. You are mine. You have been a brand plucked from the fire, and they go, I can't believe that. Why not? You've been believing that you're not all along, You're obviously capable of believing something. Believe this instead. The second piece to overcoming accusation is to believe what he says. God will declare his word to us in different ways at different times. Sometimes it comes as a memory of what he's already done or said to us. Sometimes it's a verse that exposes the devil's lie and his accusation. Right out of the Bible. Sometimes it's a reminder of his forgiveness and love. Some previous experience that you've had with God. Sometimes it comes as a prophetic word from someone else in prayer. Sometimes it comes as a dream or a vision. But the way we win the battle against accusation is to believe what God says. The person that is confident in what God says about her is the one that is secure in all her doings. There's a verse in the 27th Psalm where David is surrounded by his enemies. They're coming against him. They're crashing against him in waves. And he cries out and he says, This alone I ask and this alone I seek, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the next thing that he says is that God will hide me high up on a rock. Guys, you don't get hidden high up on a rock, typically. You, get, you think about this? You get hidden in a cave or a hole or a crag. You don't get hidden high up on a rock. David is tapping into Zechariah 3 when he says, if I'm in the presence of the Lord, I can hear what he says about me and believe it. And when I believe what the Lord says about me, I can be in the sight of all of my enemies and nothing they say or do can shake me. I'm hidden high up on a rock. You're unreachable to any assault of the enemy because your confidence is in him. Back to verse 3. What happens when we're accused when we're in the presence of the Lord, is this. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, and he is clothed in filthy garments. 
This is why accusation is often so effective. Because when the devil accuses you, he doesn't have to completely lie. He only has to partially lie. He'll remind you of the thing that you did that you should never have done. And it's, he's, he's right. He's telling the truth. But where he lies is by telling us what it produces. You see, the devil wasn't telling Joshua that he had done something wrong and it was separating from, from him from God and he had never done it. He was telling Joshua, do you remember what you did last night? Me too. Me too. And you know what it's producing? He doesn't want to see you today. And here is Joshua, and he finds himself in the filthy garments that Satan has been reminding him of. And I could see him standing before the Lord, and his head is hanging. And he's ashamed, and he can't believe that he's actually before God, because he knows he should be struck dead by a holy, pure, and righteous God. And yet God first rebukes the devil for the wickedness of his accusation and says, this one is mine. I snatched him from the fire. And oh, Joshua, let's talk about the filth of your garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua, he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, away from you. Joshua, you know that which he was reminding you about? What you did last night that you're so ashamed of? I have removed it. I don't even see it. It's gone. And oh, I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to clothe you in new garments. The righteousness of God. Joshua, you remember what you did last night. You remember feeling filthy and ashamed. And you know what I see when I look at you? I see the righteousness of God. I cloak you in my garments, in my righteousness. And then Zechariah jumps in. He's like, I'm liking this. Get him. Lord, get him. Give him a turban. Let him put a turban on his head. And Zechariah gets caught up in what God's doing and he sees that I'm the prophet. I'm seeing that God is on my side. He's on Joshua's side. Accusation can't keep us from the presence of God. God is for us. We fail, he heals. We're ashamed, he restores. And Zechariah says, I want to get in on this. Give him a new turban. What's a turban? It's his identity. It's who he is and what he's called to do. Zechariah goes, God, remind him who he is to you. Remind him what his life is going to be like with you. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with new garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. When we go into the presence of God, we are completely restored. Accusation is attempting to do one thing. 
It's attempting to keep us from walking toward God because Satan knows the moment we get before God, he's going to be rebuked, he's going to be sent away, and we are going to be completely restored. Guys, you want to know why we don't ever need to know if we're being convicted or accused? Because we should have the exact same response either way toward God. Fighting accusation is not our fight. He takes that fight for us. And right at the very end, Joshua is reminded, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The last thing that the Lord does for Joshua after he's rebuked the devil who accuses him, after he's restored him and given him the righteousness of God, is to remind him who he is to the Father and what he's called to do with his life. There's one and only one thing that I want you to take away today. We have to have one response in our hearts when we're convicted, when we're accused, when we struggle, when we fall, when we feel ashamed, when we feel joy, it's to come into the presence of God. It's to respond and draw near to God. At the heart level, it's to come forward to God and say, God, I don't feel like being here, but I know this is where I'm supposed to be. Our fight is in our response, and it's forcing ourselves to draw near to God in the moment we least feel like we should be there. And when we force ourselves long enough, eventually we develop a voluntary reaction that says, whatever I hear in my head, I'm going to get near him rather than stay away from him because he is the restorer of my soul. I'm going to pray while the worship team come back up. I've been reading a little bit in the Gospels in the past couple of weeks, and the thing that keeps amazing me at the things that Jesus says, is how confident he is in what his father feels about him. No one took as much accusation and rejection as did Jesus. No one. No one's ever been more acquainted with rejection and accusation than was Jesus. And yet, no one's ever been more confident of his father's opinion than was Jesus. If we want to know... What does God say about us? What does God really feel about us? We've got to come near to him and let him speak to us. Father, thank you that you have made a way for us. Father, thank you that you have have made a way to draw us near. That we can come near to you, not because of anything we've done or not done, but because of what you have done. Father, thank you that you're good and you want us to come near, even in our struggle, even in our shame, even in our guilt. You want to bring us near so that you can clothe us in new garments of righteousness.
Father, let your goodness be known to us. Let your word be known to us that we not be affected by accusation, shame, or guilt. Father, that you would hide us high upon a rock, unmovable in you. We love you, Father. Draw us near to you today, God. Draw us near to you always. We love you. Amen.